Hello, I'm Dr. Esmacher. Welcome to today's session on American culture in the 1950s. So we've been talking in previous classes when we've touched on the 50s about McCarthyism and this paranoia over communists at home in the United States during the early 1950s. Now we're going to shift over to talking a little bit more about the broader context of the 1950s. And the next session, we'll be talking about Eisenhower and a little bit more Americans' politics and foreign policy towards the end of the 1950s. So the 1950s is the height of an economic golden age for the United States. From 1946 to 1973, the United States economy is booming. The gross national product doubles between 1946 and 1960. And this is the time period where most Americans think of prosperity, extending to all social classes. And what separates this particular time period's prosperity from earlier ones that we've looked at earlier this semester, like the Gilded Age and the late 1800s and the Roaring Twenties, is that this era of prosperity benefits all social classes. We see an increased standard of living as the real wages or the buying power of wages increase for Americans. As Americans have access to better food resources at cheaper prices, so the American diet improves considerably. There is a housing construction boom, and again, because of good jobs and good prices, there's it's more affordable than ever before for Americans to own homes as well. And there's more access to education and recreation. There's more access to higher education in part because of the GI Bill, which many veterans of World War II took advantage of to go to college in increasing numbers and improve their education. But we also see, again, because of this prosperity over the general economy, even members of the working class who were left out of prosperity in the earlier time periods are benefiting from this booming economy and able to more afford to participate in consumer culture and buying things and engaging in leisure activities, which were previously not an option for them. This is also a time period where we have a rising middle class, so more and more Americans could be considered middle class. By 1960, about 60%, 60 of the American population was considered middle class. And the poverty rate in the United States is still at about 22% during the 1950s, but considering that the poverty rate had been 30% during the times of the Great Depression, this was an improvement. So there are still poor people in the golden age between 1946 and 1973, but on the whole, they are better off than poor people in earlier decades. We also have rising technological innovations during this time period. For example, those of us who live in the Southwest or the South will be very thankful for the invention of air conditioning, which drastically expands settlement in places like Houston and Phoenix because it makes it more livable. We also have television, which was first invented in the 1920s, started to be marketed at the end of the 30s, but because of World War II, most consumers are not going to be familiar with television until after World War II in the late 40s and early 50s. So television, we'll talk about in more detail shortly, is a huge technological innovation. It drastically changes the way Americans consume information and their leisure time. Americans are also able to afford air travel in greater numbers than before, even though the aviation industry had 
started in the 1920s, we're going to see air travel now becoming more affordable and less accessible for the average American in the 1950s and beyond. There are also expansions of household appliances, like for example, dishwashers are introduced and at a price point that most consumers can afford. And really what drastically changes the game for a lot of Americans is the expansion of what we today would kind of consider basic living necessities. Things like access to electricity, central heating, indoor plumbing, which we today take for granted, are relatively new applications across building industry in this time period. So again, the average quality of life, even for people living below the poverty line at this time period goes up because of the embrace of these innovations at the time as now the standards that we know them to be today. So what's behind this big growth in the economy during this early Cold War period? There is a direct correlation between the Cold War and economic prosperity, in part because government contracts helped to revitalize certain industries and to expand the economy in certain areas. So the government invested very heavily in defense-related industries. So, for example, on the West Coast, we see the expansion of aircraft manufacturing, places like Boeing, right, headquartered in Seattle, grow very prosperous with government contracts. In the Northeast, where industrial manufacturing had been declining, we're actually going to see a temporary rebound due to the construction of submarines for the U.S. military. In the South, we're also going to see ship yards that had popped up along the Gulf Coast during World War II continue to be used to produce ships for the Cold War for the Navy. But we also see this trend of expanding a new military bases across the South that had started during World War II continue during the Cold War. So government contracts in these areas related to defense and the military are going to be a great economic boom for these areas. And we can see that in places like El Paso, where the expansion of Fort Bliss during World War II continues after World War II into the Cold War and is a great economic engine for the city of El Paso and contributes to its growth. In addition to the defense industries, we also have a rise of white-collar workers. If you've ever heard the phrase blue-collar, white-collar, here's what it means. Back during the time period where the vast majority of the working class worked manual labor jobs, so think about heavy jobs like uh, foundry workers or, say, construction jobs. Jobs. The idea was that you wore denim, this is where denim originates, right, blue jeans, from the working class because it had dirt pretty well, it was re- really easy to clean, a no-nonsense fabric. And then if you had a more sort of inside desk job, then you could wear, say, like white button-down shirts, right? Stuff that you could wear because you weren't sweating and getting dirty, right? So this is where that white-collar, blue-collar thing comes in. So blue-collar denotes people who are from the working class who are still probably working more heavily manual labor jobs. White-collar denotes somebody who's working a skilled job or a job that doesn't require manual labor. So during the 1950s, we have an increase of American workers that could be classified as white-collar or clerical workers. Clerical workers increased by 25%, so 
think about, like, for example, administrative assistance. Corporate employees, so Americans working for large corporations, increased by 60%. And for the first time in American history, by 1956, white-collar workers outnumbered blue-collar workers. This was a big shift. This is going to also be a long-term shift as the United States starts to shift away from a manufacturing economy into more of a service-oriented and information-oriented economy. We will see an increase in commercial farms, despite the fact that the population of the United States involved in farming actually drops. In the 1950s, we see the number of Americans working in agriculture drop from 23 million to 15 million. However, during the same time period, there's a 50% increase in agricultural output. So we have less people working in agriculture, but more products being produced. And part of the reason for this increase in production, despite the fact that the workforce is declining in agriculture, is the use of technology, the use of machinery to harvest products, the use of pesticides and fertilizers to reduce the loss due to pests and to increase the growth rate of these products and the use of irrigation, opening more land to cultivation. This is especially helpful for expanding farming in the West, where in large regions of the West, water is a concern, so irrigation is vitally important. And we also see the establishment of large corporate farms in areas like the West Coast, so think like California, in part because all of this technology, all of these tools take money and investment and capital. So this increasingly means that farms are going to be large-scale commercial operations, not your small mom-and-pop setups like it traditionally happened during American history. We also see the beginning of a process called deindustrialization in the 1950s. So this is a term for the decline of manufacturing. The number of industrial workers in the United States starts to drop beginning in the 1950s. 50s, partly due to increased mechanization in production, eliminating the need for more human workers, and the decline of union membership in the 1950s related to, as we talked about, the fear of communism and radical politics. So this will begin America's shift towards a more service-oriented economy that we still see in the United States today. So as the economy is doing well in the 1950s, more and more people can afford to build and buy houses, as I mentioned earlier. So the population starts to shift away from urban or cities, urban areas or cities, to suburban areas. So these communities that are in between cities and agricultural rural farmlands to occupy this middle ground. By 1960, more people lived in suburbs than in rural or urban areas in the United States. Part of the reason that suburbs are popular is that land is more available, it's cheaper, and with more and more Americans owning cars, it's possible for Americans to live in the suburbs and still commute to work in cities during this time period. There's a big spike in home ownership aided by the GI Bill and mortgage help for veterans. The number of homes in the United States doubles in the 1950s as there's a huge housing construction boom. This is why it's very common to see suburbs and neighborhoods dating to the 1950s in cities across the United States. Part of the reason for the housing boom is mass construction methods. 
enable cheaper builds of houses. Government mortgage loan programs also make it more possible for veterans to afford homes. So the average cost of houses are dropping because of more efficient construction methods at the same time that more and more Americans qualify for government assistance due to their veteran status. So more Americans are able to buy homes during this time period. A classic example of a post-World War II suburban development is Levittown. Levittown was built on Long Island by brothers William and Alfred Levitt, who purchased 1,200 acres of farmland on Long Island and on that built 10,000 homes. Part of the reason that Levittown was so attractive and so affordable was that the houses were largely prefabricated, which meant that because they were already pre-constructed in certain pieces, it was very easy and quick to put them up and finish them. And to further keep costs down, the Levitt brothers made it so that the floor plans were fairly similar, very uniform. You could choose different exteriors for your house, but for the most part, these houses were fairly similar. About 40,000 people moved to the development of Levittown, and we're going to see similar suburban developments pop up across the United States during the 1950s and 60s. Now, suburban living, in addition to people still having to now commute into urban areas via car, is also going to change the way Americans shop. In particular, when Americans live in urban areas, it's less attractive to own a car because then you have to worry about things like parking, which is oftentimes difficult in urban centers. And so most Americans living in cities will walk or use public transit to commute to work, but also to go to stores. Now, in a suburb where things are very much spread out, you can't do that as easily. And so this is where we get the phenomenon of shopping malls, centralized locations where you had businesses all in one place that you might need to go shopping at that you could park at with your car in their giant parking lots. So this changes the way Americans shop because previously Americans tended to go to more specialty stores for different items. So you go to a butcher for your meat, you go to a bakery for your bread, you'd maybe go to a produce vendor, right, for your fruits and vegetables. Now Americans are increasingly going to supermarkets, right, where all of those things are under one roof one-stop shopping. So this means that suburbs are essentially designed for you to have a car. They're not very walkable. And in fact, this is oftentimes a critique leveled against suburbs by design folks is that they don't facilitate easy access for people who live there unless you have a car because mass transit usually is not as available in these areas as it is in the inner city. And speaking of cities, we still have growth of cities during this time period. In particular, cities in the West have a huge influx in population. More than 30 million Americans will move west of the Mississippi River between 1945 and 1975. And in the 1950s, about 20% of all population growth in the United States happens in California. So as Americans are moving west for job opportunities, we're going to see the growth of western cities like Los Angeles, Phoenix, Houston, and you'll see start to see a different phenomenon with these cities that experience growth during the post-war period versus earlier ones. Traditionally, older cities in the east, like for example, Philadelphia, 
Boston, Richmond, Detroit will all have a urban center, so a downtown where businesses and things are located. And then as the city grows and as we get suburban expansion, the city will be ringed by suburbs. So you have an inner core where your businesses are and then you have kind of residents outside that. In Western cities like Houston and Phoenix and Los Angeles, you have something that looks a little different. Here, these are called centerless cities. So essentially what happens is while there's still a main downtown in these areas, there are also different centers of business and industry around the cities. So you have several business centers and several residential areas strewn throughout these cities and they're connected by highways. These cities do not rely on public transportation. In fact, Los Angeles actively dismantled much of their public transit system in the 1950s to make room for freeways. And about a third of Southern California is paved over during the post-war period to meet this demand for transportation by building highways. Houston is a classic example of a centerless city. If you look at maps of Houston, you can see looking at both Google Maps or Google Earth, if you pull up Houston, you can see just how big the sprawl is of the city. Houston is actually one of the largest cities by area in the United States. You can also see multiple rings of highways around Houston. So I am originally from Houston. I'm from the north of Houston. And you can see by looking at a map, you kind of have an inner ring by the 610 loop, but you also have now almost two full rings outside that are increasingly large and spanning the perimeter of the sprawling city of Houston. Americans need automobiles in order to navigate these new cities and these new suburbs. And by 1960, 80% of American families have at least one car. And about 14% of American families have more than one car. Most of the cars that consumers are buying during this time period are exclusively American built. And in what will be a great irony if you're a classic car fan. These cars in the 1950s are built to purposely fall out of style in a few years. Yes, that's right. Kind of the classic image of 1950s cars would be 57 Chevys, right? Very iconic with big tail fins and lots of chrome. Those were meant to be kind of fashion trends that would quickly fall out of style. So the idea was is that you wanted to get Americans to purchase cars every few years because the style of their car had become outdated, right? So that they wanted to upgrade to be in the latest current fashion. The automobile industry helped sustain Detroit, which is still a major manufacturing center during the 1950s and home to massive automobile plants like Ford's River Rouge plant and the Willow Run plant, which was originally built to build airplanes during World War II and then converted to car manufacture. Tens of thousands of employees worked at each of these plants for Ford. The car changed Americans' lives. Not only are they now able to live in suburbs and commute to work in the interior or go drive to the local grocery store or shopping strip mall, but Americans also now embrace motel or roadside hotels, drive-in theaters, which are very popular during the time period. So there's a big screen and then you could drive in with your car and have a little speaker mounted to your car so you could hear the movie and watch it from the comfort of your car. And fast food restaurants located along roadsides 
with drive-thrus. One of the earliest fast food franchises is McDonald's, began in Illinois in 1954 by Roy Kroc. By 1964, within their first decade, McDonald's had 700 locations across the United States and had sold 400 million hamburgers. So Americans now are increasingly getting their food through drive throughs so you don't even have to park your car and go inside. I mean, think about it. How many of y'all have patronized a drive through recently, especially now that dining rooms are closed due to coronavirus as of the recording of this podcast? But the car actually becomes a symbol of financial security and freedom, that you are wealthy enough to sustain having a car, that you have a sense of independence, right? Like you're not bound to the, the bus schedule, right, to be able to go places you can just get in your car and go. And so this gives Americans the sense of freedom to be able to move wherever they want, whenever they want. And part of what enables them to actually go wherever they want is the construction of the interstate highway system. The interstate highway system was first proposed after World War I, as more and more Americans during the 1920s are getting cars. They're finding a problem being able to get around in their cars because of a lack of paved roads, especially over long distances. So during President Eisenhower's time in office, the interstate highway system is finally greenlit, which is why we call it the Eisenhower Interstate System. And 41,000 miles of highway are built across the United States to connect states. This system was justified because it would benefit American economy by facilitating transport via trucking that we still see as vital today, that it'd be beneficial to suburban developers to better connect suburban areas with cities, that it'd be helpful for the automobile industry to again promote more Americans from buying cars. However, one key bit of justification in finally getting Congress to approve funds for this massive infrastructure project was, and don't laugh, that interstate highways would enable people to quickly evacuate urban centers in the event of a nuclear attack. Yes, I know. Contain your laughter. You're at home thinking, my God, did none of these designers think of rush hour traffic? And no, there was a lot of optimism on the ability of interstate highway systems to handle high capacity traffic and not get jammed. But as anybody living near a major highway knows and has experienced during the commute during rush hour, this evacuation system doesn't work quite as planned. Especially think about it in the context of natural disasters. Again, talking about Houston, there is always a huge traffic jam when people evacuate for hurricanes, like we saw during Harvey most recently and Ike previously, that the interstate highway system, as it is constructed today, does not have the capacity to meet the demand for people in their cars. But that was one of the things that was floated as justification that, in theory, it would help us evacuate faster in the event of a nuclear attack. So as I mentioned, this golden age of the American economy is marked by prosperity across social classes, which meant for the first time that the working class could also be equal participants in what we call consumer culture, or using the purchase of products or the taking of leisure time as kind of an earmark of economic success. More and more products were available to consumers during the 1950s at more affordable prices. Part of this was due to pent-up consumer demand. During World War II, remember, a lot of manufacturing had shifted to war materials, and so even if you wanted to, say, buy a new refrigerator, it just wasn't accessible to you. So a lot of Americans had 
built up savings from World War II and hadn't been able to buy consumer products. So as the economy shifts towards making consumer products again, there's now this pent up consumer demand to spend money on consumer goods. But again, the increase of mechanization in manufacturing drops the cost of products even further and makes things like televisions and radios more accessible to the average American. And even if you didn't have enough money to, say, buy that new car, you could buy it on credit. So credit is not a phenomenon that's new to the 1950s. We've talked about credit in terms of like store credit extending all the way back to the early 1900s. However, the credit card is a new innovation during the 1950s. Credit cards, still at this point mostly associated with, say, individual store accounts, become more widespread in the 1950s as Americans are more and more comfortable with maintaining a certain level of debt to be able to afford the things they want to buy and live the lifestyle they want to live. This is why when you look at it today, a lot of American consumers do carry at least some form of debt, usually consumer debt and credit cards, but as we're seeing among younger generations, student loan debt as well. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on. American goods are also selling very well, not only at home, but also on the global marketplace. Products like Coca-Cola and Levi jeans are marketed abroad to consumers as not only essential items, but also as symbols of America and freedom in the context of the Cold War. So many U.S. manufacturers really kind of lean on the Cold War in their ad campaigns to say, you know, if you participate in this consumer culture and you buy these American products, you're helping to promote capitalism and democracy in the light of the Cold War. We also have this conversation over free enterprise in trying to minimize the amount of regulation of the government in, in the economy because, again, during a time of Cold War, we really wanted to emphasize how much freedom existed, not just for individuals, but also for businesses. People increasingly talk about capitalism, limited regulation of capitalism as a hallmark of the United States during the Cold War. Businesses use the Cold War in advertising not only to talk about their products being simple of America and freedom, but also that Americans had freedom of choice. So for example, if you go to the grocery store, you don't just have one type of ketchup to choose from, you might have 15 varieties. And today there's a little bit of a pushback against that, right? Because there's just like, there's so many choices. How do you decide? And many businesses also tie consumption to patriotism. Many businesses do this not only to do their part sort of in the Cold War and there's battle over hearts and minds, but also trying to shed the big business stigma that had plagued businesses during the 1930s, during the Great Depression, and emphasizing just how important participating in capitalism was in the context of the Cold War, that you were doing your part by buying that car or that refrigerator. Businesses pushed for less government regulation in the economy and weaker unions, who they saw as hampering their ability to run their business as they saw fit. And what's interesting is that businesses pushing this emphasis that the government needs to be hands-off in the economy in order for the economy to thrive. But as we've mentioned earlier, it's actually government contracts in certain areas of the nation that stimulate economic growth. So government defense contracts, federally sponsored loans, government subsidies and education do drive a lot of economic growth. So this notion that the government needs to be hands-off for the industry to take off really isn't as true or as applicable 
applicable when we look at certain areas of the economy that really do benefit from government contracts and loans. One of the technologies that really becomes popular during the 1950s is the television. As I mentioned earlier, the television was invented in the 1920s. It was starting to be manufactured and advertised to consumers in the late 30s, but because of World War II, most consumers don't become aware of television and start buying them until late 40s and 50s. The television at this time was introduced was a way to bring visuals into American homes. Prior to this, Americans had to go to the movies, to, to go to a physical movie theater to be able to see programming that was visual. And at this time, there were only about three television stations in the United States that were broadcasting. What's interesting about television is we have this mass purchases of television throughout the 1950s. So by the end of the 1950s, many American households had a television set at home. But when we also look at the types of programming that are popular during the 1950s, it gives us some interesting insight into 50s culture. In particular, if you look at one popular form of television show, the sitcom. So sitcom is short for situational comedy. You've probably seen a sitcom unless you live under a rock. The idea is most of these sitcoms are short, like half hour long shows, and the protagonists of the show kind of get into some sort of funny dilemma, right? There are jokes, there's humor, there's laughter, sometimes there's a laugh track. And the sitcom as a genre owes its start very heavily to radio shows. A lot of the most successful early television shows were simply successful radio programs that made the jump to television and to a visual medium. The sitcom in the early 90s, 1950s represents this shift in that you have one of the most popular early sitcoms is a sitcom called The Goldbergs not to be confused with the recent ABC show of the same name. The Goldbergs had been a successful radio show about a Jewish family living in an urban city and it made the jump to television and became popular as well. Another popular early sitcom is The Honeymooners, which again depicted two working class couples living in an apartment building in a city. And as we get to the end of the 1950s, though, the makeup of folks in the sitcom changes. Now, sitcoms towards the end of the 50s, like Leave it to Beaver and The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, depict nuclear families living in the suburbs and belonging to the middle class, where dad has a white-collar job, mom stays at home and takes care of the house and the kids. If you've ever watched Leave it to Beaver, June Cleaver is kind of the icon of 1950s housewifery. She does her chores, including her vacuuming, uh, fully dressed in like full face of makeup, pearls, dress, heels. The sitcoms towards the end of the 1950s represent less the reality that most Americans are living and instead this ideal that Americans want to live. This is kind of the hallmark of American success, that house in the suburbs, only one parent needing to work, relative prosperity. So what's interesting is that looking at sitcoms, we can kind of see this shift, right, to suburbia and to middle class away from cities and away from working class like in earlier sitcoms. In advertising, TV ads now kind of change the way that products are marketed. Again, a lot of these early TV ads were translated radio jingles. And for the first time, political campaigns embark on this new medium of television for ads as well. Television ads, again, because there are only three networks, right? You're limited in what you're watching, reach huge swaths of Americans. And many corporations during the 40s and 50s actually go so far as to sponsor TV shows 
shows. So for example, the Colgate Variety Hour, sponsored by Colgate Toothpaste. So this is also an interesting way for advertising agencies and for companies to sell products by using television and television ads. The impact on American culture and American leisure time of television cannot be overstated. Americans now spend a lot of their leisure time watching television, which leads to shifts in viewing habits. For example, there is no TiVo, there's no DVR, there's no, I'm going to watch this tomorrow on my computer on the internet with YouTube. If you wanted to watch a program, you needed to have your butt sit down in front of the TV at the time that program came on, or you would miss it. So a lot of Americans kind of rearrange their schedule to catch their favorite shows. There's no remote controls. So if you were the youngest member of the family, it was your job to get up and change the channel. If someone wanted to change the channel. And we also now have the invention of frozen dinners during this time period because you didn't want poor mom stuck in the kitchen while the program was on cooking. So now for the first time, this idea of frozen meals that you could pop in the oven because we don't have microwaves cake quite yet, so that the whole family could sit and eat off of trays while watching their favorite television program. This is invented as a way to, again, facilitate Americans to catch their favorite shows on television. So speaking of mom stuck in the kitchen, because most of these homes are not open concept in the 1950s, women in the 1950s had a bit of an interesting experience. Remember, during World War II, women were told that it was patriotic for them to leave the house, even if they had kids at home to go to work, to support the war effort, right? To bring their husbands, their brothers, their sons, their fathers home faster from war. But at the end of World War II, the message overwhelmingly that women were giving was, okay, now that your man is home, you need to quit work and ideally be a stay-at-home wife and mother. Despite this message, more women were working during the 1950s. After initially losing industrial jobs after World War II, by the late 1950s, women worked at a higher rate than they had during the war. The jobs that they had, however, changed. Most women tended to work in clerical or service industry positions where the pay was lower on average for all workers, but women also experienced a lower rate of pay in comparison to men. In 1960, working women earned about 60 cents for every dollar that men working in the same position did. This is what we called the wage gap. The idea that men and women working and doing the same exact job are paid at a different rate based on their gender. Today, the wage gap has closed somewhat. Now it's about 80 cents to a dollar for white women, but the wage gap is still very much more difficult for African-American and Latina women. Latina women in particular still only make about 55 cents to a dollar for a male colleague doing the same job. So the wage gap is still around. It has improved since the 1950s. But again, depending upon the racial and ethnic status of the woman, the wage gap is still very much in force and fluctuates. The idea of women working in the 1950s was in a perfect world, a woman shouldn't need to work. That her husband, the male breadwinner, was making enough money at his job to be able to allow his wife to stay home, that they didn't need the money. However, many families pitch women working as a way to supplement their family income. So in other words, if mom had a part-time job working at, say, 
as say a cashier at a local store that she was doing it not because the family needed the money but ideally so that when the family could afford to buy more things so that women working was a choice that a family made to be able to maintain a certain standard of living and buy more stuff that's part of the thought process too behind paying women less was this notion that well women who are working are doing so because they want to, not because they need to support their family. So that was an early argument against paying women the same for doing same jobs as men. At home, there is a much higher rate of marriage and birth during the 1950s. The average age that people got married in the 50s was 22 for men and 20 for women. So people are getting married in their very early 20s, shortly out of high school. And the divorce rate was very low. Even if someone was in an unhappy marriage, they tended to stay together and not get divorced, largely due to economic reasons. Because again, for women, if they divorced and they had to become self-sustainable, they didn't have a great selection of jobs or good pay to choose from. The birth rate during this time period is higher. The average American family had about 3.2 children. I don't know what that 0.2 comes from. I'm going to joke and say it represents like a cat or something. Today, the average American birth rate is closer to about two. So the birth rate leads to what we call the baby boom. From 1945 to 1965, this is the baby boomer generation, 30 million people are born in the United States. That's about a 20% population growth. So a lot of parents are having a lot of kids. For example, my parents are both baby boomers. My dad is one of seven children and my mom is one of four. So the average size of the American family is drastically increasing during this time. So given the fact that more Americans are having more kids, the ideal for women is that they're supposed to stay at home, be stay-at-home wives and mothers. But... During the 1950s, there's also this emphasis on how spouses should be compatible, right? That they shouldn't just marry for economic necessity, that it needed to be a love match, there needed to be respect in the relationship. Spouses were expected to enjoy each other's company in leisure activities, in consumption of consumer products, and also in the bedroom. It's no coincidence that early famous studies on human sexuality take place during this time period, including the Kinsey study and the Masters and Johnson study about human sexuality and, and sexual activity. The expectation was for women that they should enjoy being at home and that if they were unhappy with life as a stay-at-home wife and mother, then she was somehow defective, that she was lacking a maternal instinct. And we're going to talk about this more as we talk about second wave feminism in the 1960s. But a lot of women questioned this notion that they either were happy with this domestic life or they were just defective. A lot of women really struggled with this, right? That I'm supposed to enjoy staying at home with my kids and I don't. What's wrong with me? And there's also a marked increase in women seeking help and, and taking pills and other things to cope with this unhappiness with domestic life. So what's going to really kick off this second wave feminism is a book called The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan in which she specifically criticizes the standards of the 1950s and the message being sold to women that if you're not perfectly happy and full of bliss in living this domestic lifestyle, then you're flawed and broken. Until next time, I'm Dr. Smocker.